Welcome to the Good Start Podcast. I'm Barney Nelson with another amazing story of how blockchain is being used to change people's lives. If you want to listen to just one podcast that really encapsulates everything we've been trying to explain on the Good Start, this is the one. With aid tech, this is the crossroads of pretty much everything. Remittances, tokenization, transparent donations, supply chains, smart contracts, even big data, and all with identity at the very heart. More to the point, this is happening at real scale, and the examples we run through aren't just colourful, but they're everywhere. They show the scale and the enormous impact that blockchain can have on everyone across the world. AidTech really is changing lives around the entire globe, and it couldn't exist without the blockchain. I've split this interview into two parts because it is so packed with stories, ideas, and inspiration. So have a listen to this first part this week, and then come back again next week for the rest of the story. So, Neil, thank you very much for joining us on the Good Start podcast. Thank you, Barnaby. I'm delighted to be here. Can we maybe start from the beginning in terms of why aid tech was even set up in the first place and the kind of the problem that you guys were trying to solve? Barnaby, it all goes back to my good friend, my co-founder, mm. um, a really inspirational guy. He goes by the name of Joseph Thompson. He ran a marathon in, uh, in the Moroccan desert, believe it or not, back in the year 2009. He ran 151 miles. He raised 122,000 USD. He wasn't able to show the donors where the money went for that charity. It stuck in his gut, wanted to do something about it. And we thought, you know what? Why don't we create a brand new industry, hence the name Aid Tech, to bring transparency to the movement of international aid. Am I right that it was reasonably clear that there wasn't a lot of money actually going where it was meant to in the very beginning? That's the thing, Barnaby. And depending on who you speak to, and one person that we did speak to who is really credible in the space is a former Secretary General of the UN. Um, a guy who goes by the name of Ban Ki-moon, a really famous South Korean gentleman. Really well known, yeah. yeah. He's pretty well known in the space that we're in. He's on public record as saying that 30% of yeah. the Organization for Economic Coordination and Development, the OECD, that they what they classify as overseas development assistance, about 30% of that goes missing every year. $161 billion is, is sent out in foreign aid every year. And if you do the calculation, it's about $48 billion. That's how we get started. But I have to be clear that it's not just aid that we're going after right now. But mm. by linking somebody's identity to the, the receipt of aid means that you can account for every single cent. And now for us, really, it's about bringing identity to everybody. Identity for all is a big target that we have. And then linking that identity to services that we have delivered and we continue to do, like remittances, like welfare, like aid, like healthcare, and like donations. And there's a, a plethora of more that we're, we're just getting started on. There's about 1.4 billion people around the world right now who need a form of identity. We have developed a solution that enables them to claim what we call a self-sovereign identity. And that means then that they have got complete control over the data that's linked to that identity. And when we think of identity, we think of the four Ps. We think that data should be personal, that it should be unique to you. It should be private, that only you can access that. It should be portable and that you can take that with you anywhere on the web, around the world. And ultimately, then it should be persistent in that you take that with you from birth to death. Really, we want to give people ownership of their data, and we want to link that into valuable services like payments. And to give you an example then, Barnaby, we developed a solution. We call it Transparency Engine. And it means that you as a donor can make a donation to an individual. That individual can receive your donation. They receive a digital asset on the blockchain. They can spend that anywhere they choose. You as a donor who would have sent them that digital asset and paid for that with your 
debit or your credit card, then you get a notification to your phone. You get an email to tell you that your donation was spent by, by person X to buy product Y at location Z. And really the journey that we're in now, Barnaby, is we're really focused on becoming a company that's providing a link then between a digital identity and value-added services. That could be a payments gateway. That could be somebody receiving welfare, remittances, aid, healthcare donations, and they are verticals that we have delivered in right now. I think in Serbia, you're on record as having gone from, I think, 7.8% of a remittance cost down to about 3%. But equally, a lot of the aid is actually is tokenized. And so presumably, the, the beneficiaries don't even see the actual financial means when they receive it. They receive tokenized versions of, of services and goods, right? The UN and a lot of organizations around the world are now looking at one of the goals of the SDGs. There's a specific target, and it's mm. target 10C. And it's to bring the cost of remittances down to below 3% by the year 2030 and to eliminate remittance corridors of greater than 5%. And the the thing with remittances, Barnaby, is that, number one, the fees can be really high. Number two is that depending on the country that you're sending the remittance to, generally the rule of thumb is that the less developed the country, the higher the fees are. So they can be 15, Mm. they can even be 20% or higher. What we wanted to do in partnership with the UN whilst maintaining people's ownership of their data, giving them choice of what they do, was to channel remittances towards specific things. And that could be to enable people to pay their electricity bill, to pay for groceries, to pay for their utilities, Mm. and even to pay their health bill, their education, etc. And the recipient, without even knowing it, would have received a digital asset over the blockchain to their identity. But they could make a payment then at the point of sale or a government department without even knowing that the underlying asset that they are using to make payment is, in fact, a cryptographic digital asset on the blockchain. So the whole idea from day one was to keep the friction to a minimum, to enable people to control their data and to enable them to make payments seamlessly. And really, the mission of ATEC is to enable seamless access to life's most important services with digital identity at the very core we're working now with the big development bank in the east you can probably guess which one they are and the problem that we solve for banks that we work with and for development banks is the identification of the individual on the ground in these developing countries and Mm. for anybody who's technical out there our solution would enable that individual to claim the identity and then somebody like a government can send two things a digital certificate and a private key to that identity And they can effectively do the Know Your Customer, the anti-money laundering check, and they can issue an identity then to that individual, which could be used globally. But that identity then is a gateway to all these different value-added services. So if you take a project in a Pacific island, for example, then you have an on-the-ground partner, which can kick off the high-level KYC process. So you would effectively, you would begin to permission a whole bunch of people in the Pacific Island, for example, with a digital data wallet that they can start collecting their own or building their own attributes on. And then when they've collected and built their own data profile, they're ready to become recipients of anything, um, remittances, aid, et cetera, et cetera. This data credit profile that we refer to, if you think about all the people around the world who are unbanked, the thing that they lack is any form of data to prove that they have a history of financial transactions. That can mean that for things like micro insurance, for micro pension, for opening up of a bank account, for receipt of government services, mm. at least people then can start to assemble and piece together a profile to, that would be linked to their identity, which they may or may not have had beforehand. 
And even if they did, our identity platform can work with pre-existing systems. But effectively, then that is their gateway then. And that is a way that they can be reached by their local government. It could be somebody from abroad. That could be a member, member of their family sending them a remittance. Or if a foreign government funded a health project, and if that foreign government wanted to see how their, um, their money was being spent, you would be able to have traceability as to where then your funding is going and ensuring that the right people are getting the right entitlement at the right time. So you create the identity first. And then once you've started with the identity, i.e. the beneficiary, you can start racking up any number of points of interaction with that beneficiary that may be a payment, may be a tokenized donation, it may be anything else. So it becomes like a magnet, more and more and more collects, and that becomes more and more valuable, provided that, as you said, it's self-sovereign and you can share certain attributes selectively when the time comes. You've summed it up really well, Barnaby. But I guess because we're in such a nascent space, what we've had to do over time is basically prove, number one, as a startup, now moving into scale up, that we can deliver projects end to end. Two, validating that the technology that we've built can scale. And number three, then, that it can be used by people to make an impact. But what we see in the future is that the stack that we've built up will will be in the background, that people will not even know that they are using ATEC's identity. But if you think about commercial banks, development banks, charities, NGOs, all of them have a need to reach people. And really what we're, we've been spending a lot of time, effort, money, resources on is making sure that we have an API that's really robust, that can be publicly exposed, and that is going to be the entry point then for all these different people that we work with right now. But in the future, to get to scale, we want our technology to be operating the background, a bit like Oracle, that you know you can be sure that it's, it's working properly, but you may not know that it's aid tech is providing that key link um, in the background. I really hope you're enjoying this aid tech interview and that a lot of the stories are bringing the whole technology to life. There are so many other great examples out there of blockchain being used in the for good space. And I'm already working on bringing more stories are in the land registry space, the voting space, and many others ready for a season two in October. Before I do, though, I'd really like to get your feedback on anything that you think we need to be changing, improving, or any comments at all on the first series of The Good Start. Please do either subscribe at thevalueexchange.co, follow us on Facebook or on LinkedIn, and tell me what you think, because I'd really love to know. Thanks, and back to the podcast. The very first project that we ever did was in Lebanon in a refugee camp. And what we did there was we enabled the refugees, we gave them a form of identity and they would they were able to go to a merchant to get their product. And what happened before we came along, Barnaby, was, and this is not to cast refugees in a negative light, this happens in the most developed countries in the world. What happened was a lot of NGOs had been working with the refugees in the camp. They had paper-based vouchers with things like holograms with signatures on them. And the shopkeeper that we worked with for the initial, the very first aid tech pilot project back in 2015, he told us that, look, I once gave out products to refugees. And we found out then at one stage that 75% of the vouchers that he received from the refugees were fake. So our solution hinged on this idea of a digital identity. And what we enabled the merchant to do, and it's something that we still do to this day, and we're doing it in the US right now, for example, with people suffering from um, natural disasters, is when we issue somebody with an identity, 
they sign up, they can self-provision. When they do that, then they can take an image of themselves as a further factor of security that could be validated then by the government. A merchant scans the, that person's identity. And what will happen then is that their image will appear to him so he can verify then that this is the person that's associated with that identity. He can see the entitlements that they have. That can be a digital asset, like a donation, or it could be something like a, a product, a good, a service that we've digitized, aka tokenized. We're confident that we can we can root out pretty much all forms of fraud with the technology as it is right now. And literally, that's something we're doing right now at scale in Florida and Texas. And we hope to scale that then to tens of thousands of people in the next um, three months. And presumably, there must be quite a lot of pull from the retailers as well. I mean, in your example, where 75% of the goods sold were sold on a fraudulent basis, if you remove most of that fraud, then presumably that means that the retailers are actually getting better compensated. And so they're going to pull you in as quickly as they can, aren't they? I spoke with uh, a lady who runs a chain of furniture stores in Florida yesterday, and they love the solution that we built because, again, they sometimes feel responsible for ensuring that they validate the individuals who come to the point of sale, and mm. they don't like the responsibility of validating a voucher. They do get funding at the end of the day from the people that we work with, but once they know that, okay, if I if I scan this identity and I can look at the, the person who's in front of me and if it matches their image and then if they enter a PIN code, that would only be known to them. Well, I've done everything that I can. And once that information is appended to the ledger in real time, and that report then is downloadable by the parties involved and everybody's got permission to do the ledger, it's something that we found that they love. And the thing about it then is there aren't any fees for accepting payment when you're using the ATEC application to do it because removing digital assets, aka mm. digital bearer instruments, rather than fiat cash around. There does have to be settlement at the end of the day and the merchant will want to get paid in cash but if you think about it, if they carry out 100 transactions in a day, and if people were using their debit card or their credit card, they take a hit. Whereas with our technology, they don't pay any fees. Can we maybe then talk about the role of blockchain in all of this? Because 2014, 2015, that was a little bit early, I'm thinking, from a blockchain perspective. How did the two kind of coincide? Yeah, it was really driven by blockchain, Barnaby. And we do believe that if you've got a number of parties and you want to get them to work together, the way to incentivize them to work together is by building trust between those parties. Another thing that we did recently was working with the British government. They distributed £150,000 worth of goods to farmers in the Middle East. And an Irish NGO distributed digital assets to farmers. The farmers were able to go to an agricultural outlet then to obtain their products, and then they could go away and do their farming. But if you think about the parties that were involved there from the very start of the chain, you had the British taxpayer, whose tax goes to the British government. You had the Department of Foreign and international development. You had an Irish NGO. You had a merchant on the ground. You had an aid worker. And you had the recipients then who were the farmers. And to get all of them to work together and to build that trust, that's where the ledger comes into play. We have open sourced technology right now that will enable all of those different parties to deploy the ledger on their own cloud, on their own server, on their own phone, wherever that is. And everybody then can have equitable access to that ledger. And you can enable people then to have trust in that. What they do is um, something that they all have an equal say in. That's really why we think blockchain does make a difference in how we've architected the platform. So essentially, everything that happens across the aid tech ecosystem, all of that is publishing onto the blockchain. And as a result, it's tamper-proof and, and distributed at the same time. That's exactly it. And everybody then is playing their role in that chain. And in that case, you may not be able to see who he was, but you can see that somebody claimed a digital identity on our platform 
spent a digital asset called agricultural asset at a pre-approved outlet then, and they obtained goods then, which enabled them to carry out their farming. If we created or we tokenized individual things within the hardware store, like fertilizer, like um, a wheelbarrow, like a trowel, we could have got down to that level of granularity, and we have done in previous projects. But in this one here, it was showing the taxpayer where their money was being spent and to give them that level of trust that they needed. So in the case where you have the tokenized aid, am I right also that you can start to move beyond that, starting to use smart contracts and start to make the the process more programmatic? One of the cases was around expectant mothers. So being able to actually just program in the fact that at six months, they're going to automatically receive a tokenized doctor's checkup. And that the smart contract can essentially facilitate that whole transaction without any human interaction whatsoever. You're exactly right. It's my favorite one to date. And I think it's the one that's got the the most potential to make an impact around the world. This was with one of the sustainable development goals in mind. In this case, it was target 3.2. And that was to increase the health and well-being of newborns and to reduce the levels of neonatal mortality around the world. And what we did there, it was funded by the German government. We worked with the Dutch NGO on the ground in Tanzania. And if you contrast what did happen before we came along, the pregnant women, they get a paper booklet written in Swahili. And when they get their medical entitlements, like their folic acid, their ferrous sulfate, or they get their checkup, a doctor or midwife would physically mark with a pencil that they received an entitlement. And when they hopefully go through the entire journey and they give health to a healthy baby, that booklet is taken away. And then usually three months after the baby was delivered, they would put that data into a spreadsheet in a data center in Tanzania and Dar es Salaam. And then they would do some analysis on the data, but only on the historic information that they have. So we met them purely by chance. And uh, we delivered a presentation in Amsterdam, but just by chance they attended. And they said, look, we've been looking for a solution like this for a long time. We believe identity is going to be the key to distributing healthcare entitlements to women transparently. And they had heard of blockchain. They said, look, this is the missing link for us. So we decided to do what was initially a pilot project with them. And if you think about the booklet that I spoke about, we got a Dutch developer to develop a very basic mobile application. We digitized all of the different things that women would get during the course of the pregnancy. What's the uh, the prenatal care? What's the postnatal care? And what's the journey that a pregnant woman goes on to give birth to a healthy baby? And they told us, look, at week four, they will get these. At week six, they get this. At week 12, they get another entitlement. So what we did was we digitized all of the different entitlements, like the folic acid, the ferrous sulfate that I mentioned. We defined a smart contract beforehand that said at week four, send asset X to person Y. At week eight, distribute asset Z to person X, et cetera, et cetera. And they automatically got the entitlements. And what we did on top of that, we used an SMS gateway to send the women a reminder two days before they were due to go to the clinic, because a lot of them oftentimes had to travel a long journey to get there from like really remote parts of Tanzania. And then when they showed up, what happened was once they had been onboarded by the NGO and the local midwife, they presented their, um, in this case, it was a QR code. It was scanned by the, the doctor or the midwife. They, again, their image would have appeared. And then when they received their physical entitlement, be it the ferret, the ferrous sulfate, the uh, folic acid, the midwife would literally select a radio button in the app to say that I have dispensed this. And that information then was appended to the ledger. We created a really simple dashboard. 
And the amazing thing was, and the World Bank are looking at this right now, thinking it can be a globally scalable solution. They were able to tell within a matter of, of days that women weren't getting specific entitlements that they should have been. And they were able to make a decision very, very quickly after to say that, look, the women in the, in the clinic in Kiowa, we can see right now today that 20% of them who showed up who should have got iron tablets didn't get them. So we need to do something about that. And they did. And they shipped them literally down from Dar es Salaam and they got to the clinic immediately. But if you think about it then, the reason that was possible in comparison with what happened in the past was that they could view information on the ledger via a dashboard and instantly see something telling them that women aren't getting what they should. Mm. We need to do something about that. Make a real-time decision. And if you think about it, then the really powerful thing, Barnaby, is if you take that data then at an aggregated level, you can then analyze that data, which was never before available. It's the predictive analysis, the insights from places that it was never possible before is why that blockchain really is an exponential technology. And then when you layer things on top, like AI, machine learning, big data, you really can get a very, very powerful picture in countries yeah. that were never before accessible. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Good Start. I really hope that you found the first part of this interview to be really exciting and inspiring. As I said, do come back next week to finish off the interview and make sure that you share as much feedback with me as you possibly can because I'd really love to hear from you. Thank you so much and speak next week.